Okay, I think we're about to begin. Um, you'll see that we've got an extra panelist up on stage, and I will introduce everyone in a minute. But um, welcome, everyone. It's excellent to see a full house at this event. Welcome, everyone, to the LSE Economics Department public lecture this evening. Now, we're indeed fortunate and delighted to have Professor Mariana Mazzucato, about whom I will say more in a minute, deliver her lecture on why understanding the effects and the justification for economic intervention by the state needs to go beyond traditional thinking, needs to go beyond the conventional reasoning on just market failures and public goods. All students who've been trained in economics are taught from day one that in conventional reasoning, it is these latter two, to fix market failures, to provide public goods that justify state intervention. As Robert Wade, my colleague in international development, caricatured it, the traditional view has the private sector like a caged hero, bound captive by state regulation. And that hero is just waiting to spring free, to go out and achieve all the wonders that we in society might desire. Apart from these long-standing ways of thinking, we also know that the political mood today around the world is that austerity and state cutback are the things that are providing clarion calls for how we formulate economic policy going forwards. Even those arguing for expansionary policy argue based principally on just Keynesian pump priming on aggregate demand, not anything longer term and not anything more deeply structural. This evening's talk will provide us respite from this traditional way of thinking. It will give us a different picture. The speaker will argue that states should be the ones that shape and create markets, not just step in to fix them. This evening's talk will be about large new business ideas, about governments boldly taking big bets, enabling the work of private entrepreneurs and innovators, facilitating explicitly or implicitly public and private sector collaboration to forge fundamental breakthroughs in technology and economic progress. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm Professor of Economics and Professor of International Development here at the LSE. I'm fortunate enough to get to chair this evening's lecture. As we begin, could I just remind people that at LSE we welcome you tweeting about the event in real time. But I would also like it if people could put their phones on silent. You must be able to see in previous things that have appeared on screen, not right now, the hashtag that applies for the event this evening. Now the order, the running order of events is that the speaker, Mariana, will speak for about 40 minutes. After that, she has agreed that there will be a lively Q&A session engaging both audience and Mariana. Now, turning to the speaker, if I can just take up a few more seconds of your time, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Mariana Mazzucato to LSE. 
As you all know, Mariana is Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex, holding the R.M. Phillips Chair in Science and Technology Policy. In her writing, she debunks myths. She is contrarian. And of course, when we hear about the state increasing its role and intervention in technology and innovation, we're all trained economists or not, fearful of government bureaucrats trying to pick winners. Mariana will argue that the real world is just not like that. Her ideas are powerful and unconventional. They are argued tightly and rigorously, but also with great wit and insight. So if I could invite you all to help me welcome our speaker this evening, Mariana. Thank you very much. And it's a real honor. It's a real honor to be introduced by Danny because he, is, as I'm sure you know, is sort of the guru about uh, rethinking and actually thinking about the economics of the new economy, the knowledge economy, the weightless economy, and of course his recent writings on China I think are extremely important for thinking about the role of, in, of China, if you want, today as potentially one of the lead players in today's knowledge economy. But we'll probably get more to that in the, in the question time. So now the problem with this lecture is that I'm going to talk about lots more than my strict expertise, which is the economics of innovation. I mean, of course, that's not all I know about, but I'm actually going to talk about all sorts of implications of the thinking that I'm going to be talking about today for broader issues, not just innovation. Also, for example, thinking about why is it that we're outsourcing so many parts of government from education and health, and also rethinking what is it that we actually need today to get out of the crisis in a real systemic way, not just in terms of innovation and industrial policy. But I'm going to focus on innovation um, in order to bring out much bigger questions. And the four points I want to get across, and I want to say them now because I have a tendency sometimes to uh, get too excited and to maybe spend too much time on some areas. So I want to make sure I tell you the four key big points that I'm going to be going through. And the first is really to put these issues that I'm going to be talking about in the context of today in which we've just had this massive not only financial crisis, but economic crisis, in fact depressions, not just recessions, in many countries which are all looking for post-crisis growth. And the way that this is being positioned is that we somehow have to rebalance the economy away from finance towards industry. And this, of course, is how this you know, topic about innovation is becoming very important because we're seeking long-run innovation-led growth. And I want to also question, however, in the beginning, the first sort of five minutes, um, if this juxtaposition of finance as sort of bad and having gone astray versus real economy is actually problematic because it misses one of the key problems. Second, in actually thinking about you know, how to get out of a mess, I'm going to be specifically thinking about what is the role of the state, not just today, but what has it been in the history of capitalism in, in fact, nurturing this kind of long-run innovation-led growth. And this is where I'm going to try to really dismantle lots of the emphasis around the you know, state is simply fixing markets. I will, as Danny said, be arguing just even in terms of looking back at history of the role of the state in sh actively shaping and creating markets. 
Um, and if any of you are interested in that later, you should definitely read a book by Karl Polanyi called The Great Transformation, who really argues this even just from the history of capitalism, the national market, which in fact is the capitalist market, whereas local and international markets have been there since uh, you know, the time of the ancient Egyptians, is really something that was very much almost imposed by the state. It was in no way natural. I actually forgot to put on my timer to make sure I do just stick to 40 minutes. Um, from there, I want to talk about the myths that have, and I'll also be talking about the myths in the second section, but I really want to actually draw out some concrete policy problems that have come about from not actually telling this story that I'm going to be telling you in that second part properly. So the fact that we've hyped up some actors, I'll argue that, for example, we've hyped up the role of venture capital and SMEs and hyped up the role of other actors, the state, has actually led to really problematic policies that today we're seeing are actually having very little effect in actually helping us get out of the crisis because the story we have told about what the role is of the public and private sector, how they come together in these dynamic ecosystems, is, is one that has been biased around a particular way of telling that story and that's led to pretty bad policies. And I want to focus on those policies. Um, and fourth, I want to focus on what I think, to be honest, is probably the, the biggest problem that we have today in modern day capitalism, which is the increasing trend of inequality. God, there's lots of you. I have to make sure I look around everywhere. Um, and I want to argue that this as well, there's a link to the story that I'll be telling you about the state to this problem of inequality because the way that we've, we're hearing why we have inequality. We hear particular stories, for example, around the skill bias around innovation, that somehow some people are being left behind, okay? And so this is all about, you know, some actually having and being able to adapt to this new knowledge economy, economy and some not having those skills. I want to argue that actually what is happening, especially in the advanced world, is massive value extraction. But the problem is that if we don't have a story about value creation, where does value even come from? Where does wealth come from? Which will be the subject of, if you want, especially section two here, then it's very hard actually to talk about this value extraction. So all these critiques that we hear today about too much speculation, too much rent seeking, or in Ed Miliband's words, you know, too much predatory capital and not enough productive capital, it actually remains a very weak critique with very little effect because it's not properly embedded in a theory of value creation. And so in some ways what I'm trying to do in these 40 minutes, which are already probably much less than that, is to rethink value. Where does value come from? What is the role of the public sector in actually nurturing that process? Okay, so big stuff. Um, starting with that first point, um, this, this graph here produced by the Bank of England is really, again, the context that we had, right? So finance completely outpacing the real economy. What are we going to do? Well, we try to rebalance towards industry, towards real productive capital. How? Through things like industrial and innovation policy, which people like me are happy, actually, that are back on the agenda after years of being, if you want, blasphemed. However, the problem is that this way of positioning it as sort of, you know, the bad hedge funds, credit default swaps, derivative, versus this great real economy, so that we have all these industrial strategies, for example, in this country, but actually across Europe, trying to really target Target, say, areas like life sciences, creative industries, IT, um, biotechnology, nanotechnology, juxtaposition by this kind of really problematic financial sector completely misses one of the key problems, 
which is just how financialized the entire real economy became. And the real danger today is that trying to nurture this growth process by just, say, throwing money through different types of particular policies within industrial strategy um, risks feeding a sick economy even more. And don't forget that healthy finance in a sick economy is actually the perfect recipe for the next financial casino. Um, and so just some quick indicators here. This is from a research project that I coordinated for the European Commission for three years. It ended last year. Just some indicators of this sickness, because to be honest, there's not, you know, unless you put it this way, you might just feed, for example, life sciences, which is, of course, what we're doing here. We have this big life sciences strategy. We see this as a way to get out of the current problem. Now, if we actually look at different indicators of financialization. First of all, just at a more macro level, we know that the Fortune 500 companies in the last 10 years have spent $3 trillion in um, areas like share buybacks. Mm. Why do they do the share buybacks? Well, to boost stock prices, to boost stock options, which of course are hugely related to um, executive pay. When you ask these companies, uh, why are you doing that? Why aren't you reinvesting these profits that you're making into areas um, you know, like human capital formation, like R&D? One of the answers is, well, there's very few opportunities. Okay? And what I'm going to be arguing later is, let's actually look at these opportunities and who's funding them, and is this actually a good justification? But the real problem with the buybacks, to be honest, is the proportion that they're taking of the company's net earnings in comparison, again, to areas like R&D and human capital formation. So if you look here, just the numbers for Pfizer and Amgen, uh, Pfizer spent 99% of its R&D expenditures on uh, share buybacks. Amgen, since 2002, um, its uh, stock repurchases actually surpassed the company's R&D expenditure every year except 2004. These are important companies to mention because they're really, if you look at R&D um, you know, uh, studies, uh, you know, innovation studies, pharmaceuticals and biotech and nanotech, these are the most innovative sectors, right? So if this is happening in these sectors, imagine also what is happening in other sectors. Um, Apple, by the way, resisted share buybacks until Steve Jobs died. We just wrote a paper on this and, you know, actually asking, is this the future of Apple? Um, Tim Cook actually uh, uh, in 2012 announced this massive buyback scheme of Apple, and this is a, a huge change in its business model. Um, some people talk about this in terms of just the short-termism of markets. John Kay gave a lecture here recently and said, you know, this is a problem that shows the short-termism of these companies. Now, the problem with putting it also that way is if you look at particular sectors like telecommunications, there's different companies. There's Ericsson, there's Huawei, which today is number one. They have number one market share in the telecommunications industry. This is a Chinese company, private company, it's a cooperative, uh, and you have companies like Cisco, um, and they actually have very different strategies within that particular area. So if you just called it the market, they should all be facing these equal, very strong market pressures to be short-termist, but actually companies like Huawei and Ericsson do no buybacks at all. So this is also just a warning not to always just blame the market um, in terms of you know, fostering the short-termism when within industries we see a massive variety of different ways to actually react to these pressures. Um, another indicator is that, you know, we often talk about that there's not enough finance for innovation, and so, for example, lots of countries think about ways to uh, nurture finance through, for example, you know, starting up different types of venture capital schemes. The problem is that, you know, finance and innovation, there's a feedback relationship. So not only does innovation require finance, but what 
finance is actually received, we've seen over time, has influenced the actual innovation. It influences the characteristics of business investment. There's that feedback between finance and the characteristics of innovation. And what we've seen is that VC itself, venture capital funding, especially in the advanced world, has become increasingly short-termist, right? And the reason I focus here on VC is because, again, in this juxtaposition, we often think of sort of bad Magdoffian finance, you know, the derivatives, the credit default swaps, and the good, you know, Schumpeterian finance like VC, venture capitalists, somehow actually being the better kind of finance that we want to nurture that real economy. Well, the problem is that actually this VC model is very problematic for nurturing this long-run growth. Why? Because they too have become very short-termists, wanting returns more or less than three years, maximum five years. And what we've seen happen to particular sectors, because in this project we did studies across Europe in different sectors is you end up with lots of plepos, productless IPOs. Why? Because the VC model, in fact, has increasingly just been focusing on the exit stage through, for example, an IPO, and this, you know, by not actually nurturing the very difficult innovation process which actually lasts 15 to 20 years, by just focusing on returns in three years, you end up potentially really stunting that innovation process. So lots of productless IPOs in the biotech industry not producing much value or products um, within biotech. Now, this also, by the way, highlights that it's not just a fine, you know, lack of finance. We have a lack of a particular type of finance in the economy, which is patient, long-term, committed finance. And this is especially important for innovation, which is not only very uncertain, most of it fails, but also takes such a long time. Um, another indicator is, you know, we often hear that banks need to be lending more, say, to SMEs. What we found was that banks have no clue about how to actually differentiate uh, risk that's coming from the kind of risk that firms take, precisely those that are actually trying to innovate, which by the way most SMEs don't, that's a myth itself which I'll talk about later, um, most SMEs are very unproductive, don't innovate, and actually produce very little net job creation if you look at it over at least a three to five year period. They destroy the same jobs they've created within those three to five years. So how do you actually target this funding, not just to SMEs or any company, but these sort of high growth innovative companies, which we know do create that long run growth. We found that if, if you look at the horizontal axis, which is a proxy for productivity, mm, this is for Italy, but we found this across Europe. This was just a nice um, graph that I had ready. Um, that the probability of getting a bad credit score is just as high for highly productive companies as for very low productive companies. We want to start looking into this much more, but the, you know, the hypothesis is basically that you know, how do you become productive? Actually, by investing in areas like human capital and R&D, and of course they are risky, but how can you actually get banks to differentiate that kind of risk? Risk because you're actually engaging with the you know, nineteen uncertainty behind Schumpeterian creative destruction versus the kind of risk that is simply because you are not a very good company. And by talking to different banks across Europe, we found that they actually admitted this was a problem, but they don't have very much of a clue how to uh, change that. And this constant focus on uh, just talking about lack of finance and not about the lack of patient long-term committed finance, but also uh, forcing somehow banks to lend to SMEs without actually really thinking what kind of companies do we really want to be nurturing in the economy as opposed to this mythological status that we've attributed to some of them and just forcing banks to lend to firms based on their size is not very smart. 
Now, so that's, that's sort of the first point there, which is I really just wanted to say we need to be careful how we're even positioning the argument of why it is that we need this long-run growth, right, away from the speculative financialized economy towards longer-run growth. And so many countries are, in fact, trying to do this today. This, in fact, is why industrial policy is back. Um, but <laughs> I want to argue here as well that because we're not telling the story of what the state's role is in that process in these dynamic innovation ecosystems and that the story we've told has been very narrow, we are again risking to both understand the context in the wrong way but also to build ecosystems which I'll argue are not very symbiotic but actually increasingly what I'll call parasitic and I'll tell you why once we get there. Um, okay, so first of all, um, my main point here is I really think we need to change the way we talk about the state, the state not just coming in and fixing different types of failures, whether they're market failures, output failures, or system failures. This is referring to, referring to three big literatures that talk about it this way, but actually doing something sort of much more interesting, um, which I'll, I'll show you later a quote, which I'll actually mention now because it's a very important one. Keynes actually talked about uh, the state in a much broader way than just, say, output failure. He had this wonderful quote where he said what the point of government is, is not just to make things a little bit better or a little bit worse, but to really do what's not being done at all, right? That really requires imagination, it requires vision, it requires a mission, which doesn't get captured in any of these first three points here. So let me just quickly go through them, even though I probably don't have to, given the venue where we are at LSE, you know, more than um, me probably on, on, uh, on, on market failure and output failure and sure many of you have read the systems failure literature, but let me just quickly go through it. So, you know, the classic argument about market failures is if you have a public good, for example, with very high spillovers, which is very hard for firms to appropriate the returns from um, that that investment, then you're going to have underinvestment, and hence the state has to come in and fill that gap. The typical example in the innovation literature is, say, basic research. Okay, so basic research, both because it's so general, it's not very applied. Once you actually invest in, and you know create some some knowledge from that, it's very hard for companies to actually appropriate the returns from that, and hence there is, in fact, underinvestment in that. And there's very few economists that would argue that the state shouldn't be investing in basic research. Um, and in your other uh, market failure, failure policies, of course, will simply be trying to, if you want, nudge companies in different ways, whether it's tax incentives, in fact, there's plenty of R&D tax credits, or other ways, in fact, to make firms invest in these underinvested areas. Um, now, of course, in fact, I, sh I should have talked about Keynes first because this is a much more general point. Um, Keynesians, and I would say bastardized Keynesians in the sense that Keynes was much more broad, um, but those today calling themselves Keynesians talk about another type of failure, which is, of course, that the private sector invests too much during the boom, too little during the bust. And also, Keynes noted that even in the boom, it's extremely volatile. It's driven by these animal spirits, kind of gut instincts about where the future say technological and market opportunities are, which is sometimes you know, semi-random. Also, you have all these beauty contests that he talked about, so it's extremely volatile. So what you need is the government to come in and, again, fill that gap when you don't have enough aggregate demand. Okay? 
Um, and so this has been, unfortunately, even though, as, as I said, Keynes talked about things much more deeply than just this, but the way that many Keynesians talk about the need for the state to come in, and I would put here, say, Stiglitz and people like Krugman, is really mainly in periods like we have today, how to get out of this current rut we're in and why the state must kind of invest by any means necessary. Keynes himself said, don't worry too much, just dig those damn ditches, fill them up again, because the situation is so dire. Okay, now what, what I'll argue later is what's interesting, um, I, I think that these, you know, many of these same people who are arguing that the state today should be investing actually don't have an answer when they are attacked by, say, pretty conservative journalists who say, where were you during the boom telling the state to withdraw? They actually don't really have a theory of the state during the boom, which as you'll see later I'll try to uh, talk about as well. Um, in, in the place where I work called uh, SPRU, the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex, Chris Freeman, who actually my chair is what well, was his, he's a big guru, big, uh, very important person within the economics of innovation. He basically coined this term called systems of innovation because he talked about also this other failure, which is, you know, it's not just about pumping, say, R&D into the economy. It's actually setting up these horizontal linkages which actually facilitate all this new knowledge that's, say, produced, for example, through the basic research, but also, let's just call it the knowledge creating system throughout the entire economy. And so what you need are these horizontal linkages. Um, this is just an example here of all the policies within the European Commission thinking about these horizontal linkages which actually again facilitate the dissemination of the knowledge throughout the entire economy. And this is why for example Japan in the 80s grew much faster than the Soviet Union even though the Soviet Union had higher R&D to GDP. Why? Because Japan had those horizontal linkages. Um, so my basic point here is well if there are all these failures, 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 market failures, output failures, system failures, could it be? Mm we've just kind of missed one of the you know, key points of what government is doing. If it has to come in and put all these bandages constantly, might it be that actually it's doing so much more than just fixing market failures? Which doesn't mean, by the way, and I'll, I'll probably come back to this, I'm sure, in the q and I'm not arguing that the state always does this. Um, uh, properly or that the state doesn't in some countries in fact just put little bandages here and there and not anything greater. It's more a theoretical point which is what does capitalism, advanced capitalism need, require from the state and if we look at countries which have been successful, the few countries or few regions within some countries that have actually been successful in achieving innovation-led growth which countries all over the world today are, are starving for, what can we actually learn about the role of the state in advanced capitalism. Um, and so I want to argue basically that the reason that those three frameworks are they're necessary, I mean there's bits of truth in each one of them, but the reason that they are limited is that they're all in the end still assuming in their different ways this assumption here, which in the end real creativity, dynamism, innovation occurs in the private sector. And all that the state needs to do through these different types of bandages is nurture that process, create the conditions for that to occur. Um, why? Because, you know, the state in the end, it's full of a bunch of bureaucrats, civil servants who actually aren't all that dynamic, so what are they going to know about the sort of real kind of exciting stuff that Steve Jobs knows about? This is the assumption. Um, and so all that, you know, the state has to do is, you know, facilitate the existence of the Zuckerbergs and the Jobs and make their life easier. Okay? 
Now, what I'm going to argue is, in fact, that that's, that's a real myth. And by telling that story constantly in different ways, which I'll go through later with the policies, we are stunting growth. Just look at this quote here. I mean, The, the Economist is wonderful because inside The Economist it's full of you know, great data and they actually cover the entire world, unlike most papers. But the editorial line is very, very, uh, how do you say, sort of black and white. And they often take this view here, which is you know, the state, mm, yeah, of course it's necessary for the basics, for the skills, education, infrastructure, but leave the rest to the revolutionaries they came out and said this very clearly here in the special issue on green basically which they were seeing as the you know next big industrial revolution alongside with nanotech and in asking what's the next big thing going to be after the internet how are we going to nurture that process they basically said the state has to be very careful step back don't get too involved leave most of the work to these revolutionary garage tinkerers and just be funding the basics this is very much in line with this sort of you know, market failure view that I was talking about before. Now what's interesting is that Keynes himself, you know, the big proponent for government to be an active agent in modern capitalism, in some ways also fostered this myth because he talked about, as I mentioned before, private business investment as being driven by animal spirits, right? So the word animal spirits makes you think of a lion, a wolf, a tiger. But then in this great uh, letter that he wrote to Roosevelt, which, uh, which is, um, I think, very telling, but I don't think he picked up this point later in his theoretical work. He says, you know what? Actually, these businesses are not tigers, wolves, and lions. They're a bunch of domesticated animals. And if, you know, if that's true, big if, and we can talk about this later, the policies that would actually come from thinking that, the, that you, know, you have business in a cage wanting to invest, roaring to invest, and wanting to innovate, versus a domesticated animal, which you as you know, a state need to sort of make grow up and turn into a proper lion, the policies that, that come about are extremely different. In one, you simply need to try to decage that poor lion, let him go roar. So take away different types of impediments, take away that red tape, detax these poor businesses that are just you know, up to here in costs and let them roar, get them out of that cage. In the other, you need to really think about how are we going to make these domesticated animals turn into lions. And what I'll be arguing is the policies that follow are completely different. And unfortunately, by assuming, and, and, and this is what I think we're assuming today in many countries, which as I'll show later, especially the problematic countries that don't actually have enough business investment, ironically, is that you have that lion in the cage. So what I argue in this book, which I see is on, on sale out there um, <laughs> somewhere, um, is, and you know, this is why I have the lion and the pussycat in the in the um, cover is that in fact what we have seen in countries that have achieved innovation-led growth is that the state has not just facilitated uh, the knowledge economy but actively created it. I, I, I use the word entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial, because to me what entrepreneurship is about is not just setting up a company. As I mentioned before, most companies that are set up or shops that are set up or you know fail the next day and, and uh, not, not the next day within one or two years so yes that's part of a risk-taking process but to me entrepreneurship is really about the willingness the courage to really engage with that deep fundamental uncertainty which is behind you know the creation of new technologies and new markets for existing technologies and when we look across the world on what you know the role that different types of state agencies have played in that process we really you know it's very hard to not call 
these public agencies not entrepreneurial. And now, of course, this is a problem because usually the word entrepreneur just makes you think of an actual businessman who opens, you know, who, who starts up a, a company, a startup, one of these garage tinkers. I, I also want to be, you know, actually questioning how that word is is used. Um, so what I'm talking about here is the state really is one of the lead risk takers. And in order to talk about risk, you actually have to know sort of what you're talking about. You need to go down to the sectoral level. These entrepreneurs aren't just these general businessmen into the economy. They're investing in real technologies, real sectors. And so what you see, if you think of it in this sort of risk landscape type way, whether you have capital intensity on the, on the vertical axis and say technological and market risk on the horizontal axis, or if you put it like this, what I've seen in sector after sector after sector is that that top right-hand corner is is the one that is void of, if you want, private finance, and the one that is screaming for these entrepreneurial state institutions. Do not think, when I use the word state, kind of a big leviathan, as the economist talks about it, I'm talking about different types of state agencies within a country. The story I'll tell in a minute in Silicon Valley was really about 17 different state agencies, okay? So just think of sort of public sector institutions of different types. The BBC, by the way, in the UK is a state institution. Um, so open your mind when I'm, I'm using the word state. Um, also think of it in terms of when we think of early stage seed finance, I started asking who is actually funding that really difficult early stage when that risk of loss is, is so high, right? I mean, don't forget that uh, this is the reason why uh, Schumpeter, who's one of the big theorists on innovation, said that the banker is the E4 of capitalism. Schumpeter, who thought so much about innovation, knew innovation has to be financed. And he didn't talk about this much, but those of us who have then looked at the relationship between finance and innovation notice that you know, traditional banks are scared, are really scared of this high loss of risk, high uncertainty that you have in this early stage. And unfortunately, as I said before, venture capital itself, which was set up to, to, to fund that early stage, has increasingly not been able to precisely because itself has become risk averse and waited until uh, that risk has actually been taken on by the state, and I'll show you some numbers in a minute. Anyway, looking at particular sectors, this upper right-hand quadrant here, and this is the capital intensity on the vertical axis, that right-hand, right um, upper quadrant there is, is currently being starved of private finance, and it's not surprising when you look at the data. There's just been a report out showing this, that it's mainly either you know, the U.S. Department of Energy or the Chinese Development Bank or the KFW, which is the German State Investment Bank, um, the Brazilian Development Bank funding these difficult uh, high-risk areas. If you look at this early stage finance that I mentioned, what's interesting in the U.S., and the reason I'm going to talk quite a bit about the U.S. is that the the U.S. is the place that we're always told is the market model, right? I mean, again, in Europe, when it's thinking to itself, where are the European Googles, they then looked at Silicon Valley and said, you know, how are we going to create different types of Silicon Valley dynamics across Europe? So in London, we did this in the east of London, you know, the Silicon Roundabout, and the big lesson that if you look at the literature that writes about this, you know, where are the European Googles, one of the lessons that they seem to have learned from Silicon Valley was that Silicon Valley was basically a VC-led revolution, venture capital-led revolution. You then look at what VC has done in Silicon Valley, and you basically see, again, sector by sector, not just IT, but also the biotech and the nanotech investments that occurred there as well, is they came in after 
the state actually absorbed most of the really high risk. And you see this in these numbers here, even though this is more recent data, um, that these SBIR funds in the US, small business innovation research funds, which are basically public sector, early stage finance, mainly through procurement, but not only, not only were very important, but have become increasingly important. This isn't obvious, right? You might think that over time, the public sector can withdraw as these markets somehow become more fervent, instead precisely because finance has itself become so short-termist it, with innovation, the state has had to um, step in even more over time. Um, and what's very important here is that these investments that have been made are not just, as I mentioned before, kind of the public good problem, so the state coming in and just funding the very upstream stuff, right, the basic research. What you've seen um, in nanotech, in life sciences, in IT, is the state having to actually not so much micromanage the process, but be able to through these big mission level investments, right? So this is the word that I'm going to be using to counter the market failure framework. I'm going to be talking about the mission-oriented framework. The mission-oriented framework has required the state not just to fix that market failure problem in basic research, but even to fund lots of the applied research, which is still full of all sorts of technological and market risk, and even fund this early stage seed finance. So in this graph here, uh, you know, uh, the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, DARPA, which funded the internet, most of you must probably know that, the SBIR funds, uh, ARPA-E today, that's funding lots of the applied research in the Department of Energy that was run until recently by a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Steve Chu. Um, you know, the state has actually had its, its hands in lots of this process. And the reason why is that it wasn't just coming in to fix a little problem. Lots of these investments were in fact driven by big missions, whether it was putting a man on the moon in the past, which led to all sorts of technological uh, spillovers, um, to today, Obama's stimulus program is very much green directed and there is this big mission around climate change. There's also a big mission, well tackling climate change, there's also a big mission today in the US government around health. And, you know, again, I'm only talking about the U.S. because this, we're always told that the U.S. is the market model. But if you look around the world, those countries today like Singapore, Korea, China, Brazil, Denmark, Finland, and Germany that are, in fact, the few countries, because there's not all that many of them, that are actually growing through innovation-led growth, what we see is very similar patterns. That it's been this public, different types of public financial institutions which have been able to find the courage to really invest actively in this mission-oriented way across the board, not just coming in and fixing little problems. Now, the iPhone is, is a good example because, of course, we're constantly, you know, sold this, this story about Steve Jobs, and it's a wonderful... Um, biography written on him, but no place in those 700 pages or however long it was, great book, does it actually mention the huge wave that Steve Jobs' success surfed on, right? So if you ask yourself what makes the iPhone so smart and not stupid, why is it a revolutionary phone using the economist's words, well, it's what you can do with it. And what can you do with it? All these great things. You can surf the web, you can, you know, use GPS and know where you are, you can even press this button, which I never get it to work, but the Siri voice activated system and ask it where the greatest restaurant is near you on a street. All those technologies were actually funded directly by the state. They were, God forbid, picked 
Okay? And of course, for every of these technologies that were picked and funded, as the internet was, as GPS was, um, there's also many failures. You will fail. This is the point. Um, you know, innovation is very uncertain, so these are examples of the successes. Apple itself received $500,000 directly, the company, from, from an SBIC grant, which is also not mentioned at all in the biography. Um, for every apple, you have 10 rotten bananas. But, you know, you don't get told that Apple is, is a success story of the U.S. government, not only of the U.S. government. Of course you needed someone as smart as Steve Jobs, and of course there's not enough of those people, and of course the world would be better off with more geniuses like him. But the degree to which he was actually successful in putting together in his really funky way with a great vision towards design, existing technologies that were funded by the state is not a story you're often told. And of course that whole then other story that we are told about Apple not paying enough tax. Even there, the critics who then, you know, are blaming Apple and saying you should pay more tax, even they are not saying you should also pay more tax precisely because your core profits today, um, you know, in the last years are precisely coming from a, a product which without state funds and hence without tax revenue, there will not be future Apples. Uh, Google's algorithm also was funded by the National Science Foundation. I don't have all the lists here, but in the book I go through all these examples. Um, now many people say, oh, but you're just talking about the military-industrial complex, you know, and so this is just a result of war, a big war-generating machine. These are especially my progressive friends who are always like saying, be careful, you're basically just saying we need more military. And the answer is that's not true. Um, sector by sector, department by department, this story, we see it. So this is an example of health. In the U.S., the National Institutes of Health are providing for the healthcare industry similar uh, dynamics as what DARPA did for the Internet, so funding the really scary radical stuff. This is data coming from Marsha Angel's book, uh, The Truth Behind the Drug Companies, where she actually breaks down uh, drugs by whether they are really revolutionary, again, the economist's words, or whether they are just slight variations of existing drugs, so Viagra, different color, different dosage, and she finds that 75% of the new molecular entities with priority rating, so the, the crazy drugs, are coming out of either NIH labs directly or NIH-funded labs and universities and other areas. And this is, again, the figures are getting higher and higher. There's not less need under advanced capitalism for this kind of courageous entrepreneurial state funding. And um, I'll argue later that even the word that then Keynesians used to describe the benefits of state funding or state, you know, the G part of GDP doesn't capture this at all because at best it's seen as just kind of crowding in um, instead of crowding out, which is of course the bad thing. What I'm really describing is the degree to which these public sector investments across different agencies are really making sectors much more dynamic, actually kind of breaking new ground, allowing new technologies to emerge that would not have emerged without the public sector playing that role. So we actually need different words. And I suggest, just for, because of lack of a better word, you know, the word dynamizing in, crowding in still has as a benchmark this really bad thing, which is crowding out. I mean, you know, I don't think crowding in sounds very good. Um, and of course, you know, if someone like Vernon Rutten has actually documented how all the big general purpose technologies, which we know from endogenous growth theory, are the technologies that actually generate this long-run growth, they, all these here were all funded by government. Um, so yeah, this is the irony that the place in the world that's sold to us as uh, 
you know, the, the state having stepped back actually is one of the most interventionist uh, states. Uh, Fred Block and his um, colleague Matthew Keller wrote a book called The State of Innovation where they actually go through lots of these agencies in detail. But something that's really important is, you know, this isn't easy to copy. It's not as if you just have to throw money at stuff, right? And I'm sure this is going to come out in some of the Q&A. By, by admitting the role that the state can play and has played in some places, you then have to be very demanding of your state institutions. DARPA thought about this very much and actually you know, started thinking, what should we do organizationally to, for example, welcome failure? If you fear failure, you are not going to be very successful. Why? Because most innovation, in fact, leads to failure. So if you fear it, you won't even be engaging with that process. So they actually thought about intra-organizational dynamics that people actually study in business schools, usually just for the private sector. So how to retain you know, the dynamism in big corporations. It's just as true for government. But because we're always just assuming government anyway is just inertial, it's a bunch of bureaucratic uh, Hobbesian leviathans, and we haven't even really applied some of the most interesting insights of strategic management to government institutions. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we think that the state is, in fact, just a bureaucratic institution and describe it in that way, will the you know, most smart graduates from LSE, Harvard, or wherever want to go work for the state versus the exciting Googles and Goldman Sachses of this world. So in fact, it, 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 it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and I find that across the countries I look at, the more the state is seen as just fixing little market failures and isn't driven by these big missions, the less it's actually able then to attract the expertise within the government to then you know, engage with that change. Um, okay, I better start speeding up here. So, you know, if the next big thing after the internet is going to be green, well, the lessons that we know from looking at these previous uh, revolutions is that green is going to actually require a much uh, more active state than just, say, something like a green investment bank, which nudges the thing along. And in fact, if you look around the world, and I've named here some countries that are really the biggest investors in green today, and by the way, by green, I don't mean just solar, wind, and biofuels, but of course, yes, also that, but also greening all sectors, so new engines for the automobile industry. Um, it's happening in, let me see if this is my next, yeah, so this is the examples of countries where you have these state investment banks playing a massive role in funding green innovation. Um, but also, this is very interesting here, this is public versus private energy R&D, just for the US, and you see that uh, unfortunately, the private uh, R&D was in fact increasing up until the uh, late 90s and then started falling, and so the public sector again had to step in and not, whoops, diminish. Um, and Bill Gates himself, who's one of the five CEOs on this thing called the American, uh, what's it called, AEIC, American Energy Industry Council, is you know, arguing constantly with his other four guys, one of which is John Doerr, very famous venture capitalist, that they want, you know, they actually recognize this role of the state. They've in fact just asked me to give a talk. I'm in Washington next week. I'm going there. And I don't think they'd be very happy with this next slide I have here, which is to say, hold on, <laughs> you know, what's happening? Is this good that these, that these you know, CEOs of top companies that, as I mentioned before, are engaging in massive share buyback schemes and not investing their own R of R&D in these big new opportunities or just simply asking more and more from the state? So we need to be careful in thinking about these ecosystems. How can we actually increase the commitment of the private sector to this process, which is not what we saw 
in that uh, graph there to the left. Um, and so, you know, the numbers I have here is that the uh, AIC guys together have spent $237 billion on stock repurchases, and last, in, in 2010, they were begging the government to spend $16 billion on R&D, which is, hey, why don't you just take a little bit away from that repurchase money? And don't forget, what did I say that they have as an excuse for, for doing this massive repurchases, which boosts stock prices, stock options, and executive pay? They say there's no opportunities. Well, Bill Gates here is arguing there's definitely an opportunity. He's just asking government to uh, undertake that. And of course, you do need these public-private partnerships. I just think there's a real worry there that we're not building the kind of public-private partnerships today that, by the way, we had in the past. Don't forget Xerox Park and Bell Labs. These were big R&D laboratories in the private sector co-investing with the state, not just in little gadgets, but big new stuff. In fact, touchscreen display itself was co-invested in by uh, the Xerox Labs. And this is not some sort of romantic thing about going to the past, but really asking the private sector to step up in these ecosystems instead of just being de-risked. I think that's a really problematic word. And in fact, I've been looking at the words that are being used today because I think they reflect the problem with the framework. What the state did and all the examples I've given is not simply de-risk the private sector, kind of just took on that risk, you know, took it on, um, you know, was a lead risk taker, which the word de-risking as a word itself, I think, completely hypes it down. Um, so I've already gone through this <laughs> image, which is, again, I think that it's, it's this image of the, of the lion in the cage, which then leads to this kind of philosophy where, you know, Britain is great. Why shouldn't investors come here? Because we have low corporation tax and very little regulation. So this, you know, come here and roar, roar. Well, first of all, obviously, this is, you know, this is very much of a... Uh, how do you say, very low scale, um, how do you say, low mission for government to sort of attract capital just in this way, but again, it assumes that there's this drive to invest. Um, now the problem is, of course, if you look at business R&D spending across Europe, and look especially at the sort of richer parts of Europe in terms of this horizontal axis, so GDP per inhabitant, uh, the UK, like the Netherlands and like Italy and Ireland, have very low bird rates, right? So business R&D spending. Uh, what we know from uh, taxes like the R&D tax credits, right, or even the patent box, they have hardly any effect on the additionality. So there's very little, uh, actually there's no evidence that I know of that actually that they're making R&D happen that would not have happened anyway. Why is that? Because what's actually driving private business investment, especially, but not only in areas like innovation, are in fact, um, you know, this again, perception about where the new technological and market opportunities are. Bill Gates did not do his thing when Microsoft was small, or Steve Jobs did not do his thing when Apple was still small just because it cost less. Okay? They did it because they really saw this big opportunity. So the real question today is who's funding these big new opportunities, which in fact will allow then the private sector to come in later. I probably don't have much time to talk about this. We'll just go through it. I'm literally just going to name them, which is, I've already said this. This, this, these myths, if you want, right? So I'm going to talk about how the wrong way that we've talked about this wealth creation process is leading to bad policies. Huge hype around BC when actually it's just leading to these plepos. Um, this is a great quote, but 
no time for it. Obsession with this SMEs, when actually if you look at the numbers, there's no evidence that in almost any advanced country, this is very different in developing countries, um, that they are the leaders of, of, of growth, and yet we're obsessing around them instead of thinking what kind of SMEs should we be targeting. Um, also, this complete obsession with knowledge transfer as if the whole problem is just commercialization, right? So we somehow have great science, great research, we just have to push it and actually get it commercialized. This completely ignores the numbers I showed you before with very little bird rates in across Europe, but also um, you know, in places like the US, one thing that's very interesting is it's not that they have better science, but much more of it actually properly distributed throughout the country. So lots and lots of top research institutions. You know, UC San Francisco, it's probably not on your you know, radar as being one of the top research institutions. It actually is. In, in Europe, we're getting more and more concentrated. And a big question, of course, for universities is what is the rest doing to that process? But we won't go there. Um, and also, a very interesting thing in the US, which of course I don't want to defend the US, because as you'll see, I'll argue in the fourth part, which I'm coming to now, it's, it's very problematic what's happening in the US. But one positive thing about the US is also it's a very clear division of labor. Top, top research in universities, early stage technology development in companies. What we're seeing across Europe is forcing universities to do early stage technology development and there's very little evidence is producing any products that, you know, for the market and we're almost creating universities to produce spin-outs. That almost happened by accident in, in the US. There was no spin-out policy and in fact if you look at the spin-outs that are coming out of places like Cambridge, the way that you should then measure their success is have some numbers on the money that's going into them you know, as a policy and it's massive, massive amounts of money are going into these spin-out strategies and it's very unproductive when you then look at the um, what's coming out, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about spin-outs, it just means there's a very different way to look at it. Again, the pigs, you know, Goldman Sachs's pigs, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain completely stand out here. I mean, it almost looks like, <laughs> um, you know, this is done on purpose, but these are countries that did not spend too much but spent very unwisely and very, very little in all the areas that we know are producing growth. So human capital formation, education, R&D, and yet the recipes that we're giving these countries is to cut, 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 and in fact Spain just cut its publicly funded research by 40% since 2009. Is this going to make it become like Germany? Well, no, especially look at what happened in Germany. Um, uh, huge increase in its publicly funded R&D spending in order to get out of the crisis. Um, okay, I'm not going to go over this whole thing, but yes, they focus way too much on tax and red tape. This is coming out of the idea that somehow, you know, this lion is in the cage, you just need to make life easier. Um, and, and what I am, however, very interested in tax for is that the stories that are told both in terms of capital gains tax, corporate income tax, but also all these particular taxes like R&D tax credits or the patent box, which is probably the stupidest policy move ever, uh, which we can talk about later, um, have always coincided with the story about wealth creation and innovation. It was actually the National Venture Capital Agency, which in 1976 in the US began negotiating for capital gains to fall from 40% to 20%, 
so 50% cut in just seven years. That's what it went down to in 1981. Why? We're the innovators. We're the risk takers. Lower our tax. That's what drives our investment. That's not what drives our investment. Look at biotech. They came in 15 years after. The state did the hard stuff. What's driving their investment, as I said before, is this perception of the big new opportunities. The only thing that capital gains tax, uh, that, that fall, 50% fall, and it's still falling, um, achieved was increasing inequality. Okay? Which is, in fact, what I want to get to now. Which is, if it's true then, and I promise to do this in no more than three minutes, if it's true that the state is not just fixing little things here and there and important for the background, you know, infrastructure, education, police force, but actually has been one of the most dynamic, leading, risk-taking agents in the economy. Well, if you've ever taken a finance class, uh, the first thing you learn is risks and rewards. So the question is, where are the rewards? And what's really interesting here is the parallel of the critique that we've heard with the financial sector. People like Andy Haldane have written wonderful papers saying, you know, socialization of risk, privatization of rewards, as having been one of the lead sicknesses in finance. So they took these crazy risks, made profits when things were good. When things went bad, the state absorbed the entire downside, right? So that's what that phrase means. Well, I've basically been describing the same problem in the real economy. So we have one of the lead risk takers, A, not being recognized, and, and B, actually being constantly <laughs> uh, downsized through the story that we're telling about innovation. So lower capital gains tax, lower corporate income tax, uh, R&D tax credits, patent box, that, that whole way of telling what drives investment and innovation is actually then hurting over time the state to fund this stuff. What was uh, the marginal top income tax under Eisenhower? Anyone know? I mean, he was not a communist. Sorry? Yeah. Close to 90%. So, you know, what is happening to the tax base? Obviously, I'm not arguing for a 90% tax uh, rate, but the point is what's happening today to tax and to many other um, areas that are increasing inequality, I think is important to think about. And this graph here, which tells you what I said at the beginning, which I think is the biggest problem in today's capitalism, the way that this curve here, that red curve, um, the average income of the top 1% has been not so much justified, but told to us on why this is happening is somehow about the, you know, the skill bias that this you know, new economy, information technology, you know, big national nanotech stuff that's happening is leaving behind some people. Well, basically, I think what's actually happening, yes, of course, there is problems around skills, but what we've witnessed is a massive value extraction. So what I've been talking about is value creation, but also the fact that we haven't then recognized the state as a lead player has then allowed lots of value extraction to do what I think has then nurtured that process there. I mean, just look at that that steep rising red curve there and look at it again here. Just look at the dates. 2000, obviously, I'm not trying to make a complete parallel here, but the point is there is a relationship between all sorts of different value extraction tools and mechanisms um, and this inequality relationship, and this is just one. So I'm not saying it's all about buybacks, but buybacks to me are a good proxy for the ability of certain agents in the economy to extract value. And this story as well, by the way, I mean, for those of you who've actually re read the work on shareholder value, you know, by people like Michael Jensen, that's, that shareholder value model is actually justified precisely in terms of who are the biggest risk takers, who are the actors that are the most important in the economy, well, the shareholders, why? Because they have no no guaranteed rate of return, right? So they only get something in the end if there's a residual, 
So they're the residual claimants, right? So this notion that somehow the government or workers have a guaranteed rate of return, first of all, it's completely false. I mean, the government did not have a guaranteed rate of anything when it invested in the internet. Mm. I'm sure someone will ask me about Solyndra later, which I want to talk about, but it is true that for every successful Apple or internet, you will have failures like Solyndra. Um, and so, you know, uh, it's, the government is a massive risk taker, has no guaranteed rate of return, but the shareholder value model, which then leads to these types of practices, is, hasn't just come out of anywhere. It came out of a particular story that was told about risk taking and indirectly about innovation. Um, so what I argue at the end of the book is that we need to, first of all, not just admit the role of the state, but also think about the rewards because it's not actually happening through tax today. And the fact that innovation is so cumulative, it's not, you know, this random walk process. It's not a Gaussian. Uh, it's not, uh, how do you say, you know, an IID random variable identically and, you know, it, what is this for again? Um, independently and identically distributed random variables, so it's not, it, it doesn't have an equal probability of occurring at any moment in time. Why? Because innovation is path dependent. Innovation today builds an innovation yesterday. So the fact that some actors can actually come in in the middle, as VC did, but also lots of the shareholder repurchase schemes enable, what has happened, because policymakers have been kind of very wimpy in confrontation, with these public-private uh, uh, partnerships, they've allowed the private part, which is important, I'm not arguing against the private part, but they've allowed the private part to, ca to capture a way disproportionate part of the return, much more than what it's put in. So almost the entire integral under this curve, which again, if innovation wasn't cumulative, wasn't path dependent, wasn't persistent, um, then actually it would be much harder. So actually understanding the characteristics of innovation actually also help us understand how this capture occurs. Now, um, how to do this? Well, you know, Citra in Finland uh, invested in Nokia and retained equity. The NSF funded Google's algorithm and there was nothing in the grant that said, you know, take the money, if things fail, no worries, but when and if or if and when you make X billion, something should perhaps come back to the NSF. Now, how that should occur, obviously you need lawyers, it's not up to me, but the point is, there's all sorts of mechanisms that one might at least think about and maybe then decide that only some are good and again, think alongside business and alongside different lawyers on what mechanisms, but retaining a share of the IPR, why not? Golden share in those cases where these public funds were so important. Um, income contingent loans, we do it for students, why not for companies? Uh, retaining some equity. Um, also these state investment banks. In some of these countries like Germany, China, and Brazil, what we see is these state investment banks taking an increasing role, not just in things like infrastructure and this catch-up process, but also really in the leading edge areas of innovation. And what's very interesting is that those, like the one in Brazil that's actually directed by two guys who got PhDs in the economics of innovation, they're very successful. 21% return on equity. The treasury takes it, re, you know, plugs it back into the economy, health, education, favelas, it gets that kind of circular flow of funding, which is what we need if we really do want um, uh, growth to be not only smart, but also inclusive. And in places like Silicon Valley, and this is where I'm going to tell you the bad story about Silicon Valley, besides how certain actors have been hyped up, a great article to read is what's happened to pu the public school system there. And the article is in the New Yorker about a month and a half ago. Um, public school systems in Silicon Valley since the 1970s 
completely downhill. So it's very ghettoized, that entire um, part of California. California, by the way, also used to be the, the state that spent the most of all states on education. Now it's the state that spends the most on prisons of all the states. You know, this is part of its problem. Um, but the point is to think about this risk-reward process also means to make sure that those areas that are funding this stuff actually also benefit and not just so locally, regionally like Silicon Valley, but the U.S. itself, which is one of the countries in the world today that experiencing the most inequality, as we know. And so my big point, again, is to rethink this cartoon image that we're constantly fed of. This comes from the end of a TED talk I did where it was actually a really funky Prezi, but I felt like I should at least use it here since so much work went into it. Um, but the point is that unless we debunk this myth as the first myth, then we're going to constantly go back to um, uh, these problematic ways to not just tell the story, not just the problematic policies, but also not actually rethink what it is that the taxpayers are owed back. And that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>